Hello and welcome to the Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast, where we address innovation and the law from three angles, people, technology and business. Today we are here at the Law, Innovation and Vulnerability Conference at the Faculty of Law at the University of Copenhagen, together with Professor Saula Omarova, Beth and Mark Goldberg, Professor of Law at the Cornell Law School in the United States. Professor Omarova specializes in regulation of financial institutions, banking law, international finance, and corporate finance. Before joining Cornell Law School in 2014, she was the George R. Ward Associate Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina School of Law. Prior to joining academia, Professor Omarova practiced law in the financial institutions group of Davis, Polk and Wardwell, a premier New York law firm where she specialized in a wide variety of corporate transactions and advisory work in the area of financial regulation. In 2006 and 2007, she served as the U.S. Department of the Treasury as a special advisor of regulatory policy to the Undersecretary for Domestic Finance. Welcome, Sally. Thank you so much, Alexander. Happy to be here. And on the other side, you have myself. My name is Alexander Anthoff. I'm the Associate Professor at the Faculty of Law. And today I will be your uh, yeah, interviewer, if you like. And we are recording our podcast in the wake of the conference that we held uh, on law innovation and vulnerability. And Sally was our keynote speaker, uh, which we are extremely uh, grateful for. You know that you traveled all the way from the U.S. to join us, and um, in your keynote, you spoke about the three elements that were in the in at the heart of the conference, which is the law, innovation, and vulnerability from the financial uh, law perspective or financial regulation perspective. So, I would kindly ask you if you could tell uh, our listeners a little bit more about your perception how these three elements come together and what we need to be cautious about when really pushing or envisioning a more innovative future. Thank you, Alexander. I was very happy to be invited to this conference because the topic of this conference is extremely timely and very, very important. Uh, we do live in exciting times, particularly when it comes to finance. Technology is really changing the way we transact the way we make payments, make investments, uh, check our portfolio mm-hmm. uh, on a daily basis, and just generally think about finance. And it's it's all really wonderful because technology is making it much easier, cheaper, and more convenient for us to deal with the financial world. But at the same time, we are now, as a society, increasingly becoming aware of the challenges that new technology poses to financial regulation, financial law, and to um, people that Mm -hmm. are uh, sort of subjects of all those regulatory concerns. So um, finance is, uh, you know, it's part of the society. And uh, finance is always about power and control, control of our lives, our economic lives, and um, control over how we relate to one another. And financial regulation has been uh, an important instrument in managing uh, these sort of very delicate power relationships, making sure, for example, that on an individual level, people do not get lied to, cheated, defrauded, so that people have 
trust in the financial system. And so nobody's afraid to come to financial markets and make investments and put their money in the bank and so on and so forth. These are very, very important kind of micro-level uh, transactional underpinnings of how our financial system and the economy works. On the macro level, the financial system is supposed to serve a particularly important goal of connecting the savers of funds, you know, people with money and big investors, with entrepreneurs, companies, businesses, households, um, those entities that have need for capital so that our economy can actually function properly. And one of the goals of financial regulation is to preserve the stability mm -hmm. of that exchange and integrity of our capital markets and uh, the ability of the financial system to really channel capital into the productive economy from which we all can benefit. So technology is now pushing uh, the way money flows through the system, but it's also pushing the very fundamental assumptions behind the existing system of financial regulation. So our financial regulation rests on a particular set of assumptions, you know, let's call it a paradigm mm -hmm. of financial regulation. And of course, in every country, in every jurisdiction, there are differences in how certain issues are dealt with. But generally speaking, for the last hundred years or so, we've had a particular model of financial regulation that sort of presumes that particular types of financial instruments or relationships, for example, banking products, securities, you know, bonds, stocks, and so on and so forth, insurance contracts, can be easily categorized and put in particular silos, uh, denoting certain types, of, certain types of interactions, right? And each type of a financial product, be it a bank deposit, be it a loan, be it a security, is presumed to pose certain types of risks. Mm -hmm. And then the regulatory enterprise is meant to address those specific risks. So, for example, in the world of securities, the primary tool of regulation is disclosure. Right? As long as people know what the risks are, they can actually invest and take those risks on themselves. In the world of banking, there is a lot more intrusive regulation with respect to preserving the safety and soundness of banking institutions because they serve a particular function in the society and so on and so forth. And so this, this creation of silos also led to a particular architecture and structure of financial regulation that relies on fairly narrow technocratic expertise, bureaucratic expertise. Uh, lawyers and regulators that uh, oversee securities markets are not exactly the same lawyers and regulators that feel comfortable, for example, dealing with banking products, mm -hmm. insurance products, and so on and so forth. And um, more abstractly, but very importantly, there is also this assumption that the task of a regulator is to go in uh, the particular area in which there is a specific identifiable market failure and use a scalpel, so to speak, to really address that particular problem in a very technocratic way, excise that, um, that um, you know, issue and uh, solve it and address it specifically without otherwise interfering in how the market uh, operates because for decades we've had the market operating fairly well. So um, uh, does this model operate well, equally well now that uh, we have technology changing mm -hmm. finance moves, right? So my view is that actually this entire model is coming under such pressure that we may need to revisit those assumptions about legal categories and uh, reliance of 
a very narrow technical expertise, shying away from making larger normative decisions, perhaps, and trying to use the scalpel. Sometimes maybe we need to take a step back and kind of think in a broader perspective with respect to what it is that we're trying to achieve. And just to give you a couple of examples, for example, technology mm-hmm. is uh, making our finance much bigger and faster. What does that mean? That means that now new fintech, fintech applications, the crypto world and whatnot, opens the world of finance to new segments of society that have previously been marginalized or not particularly important in the world of traditional finance. So people now can use um, you know, their phones to basically transact in very small amounts of money, but fast and continuously around the clock, right? New providers of financial services are coming into play. Fintech companies, technology companies, app producers, uh, computer scientists now can basically become providers of financial services. Exactly. It's not just for bankers anymore, yeah. right? Um, and uh, that creates issues for financial regulators that are used to living in particular silos, right? Yes, because I also observe, and I think that's the, well, on one hand side, and add value, but also potential risk of many of these fintech solutions is that they do not necessarily observe these silos that we have been living in for the past, let's say, 100 years. And they somehow are a banking tool that is also offering an insurance and investment. And then you can also save for your pension, ultimately. And then, of course, for these kind of tools, the silos that we know does not make, they, they do not make sense anymore. So so what do, we, what do we do with this? Do we say that for the fintech, well, you need still to stay within the silo or do we open ourselves up to rethinking as you said redesigning the architecture and allowing this technology that is actually the one trillion dollar question alexandra (laughs) Uh, i wish i had a clear answer to that for now of course we have to continue with the law and the regulatory schemes that we already have and a lot of the products and new services can be put in particular regulatory schemes, regulatory silos for specific purposes, right? But as you absolutely correctly observed, almost none of them fit into those silos perfectly. In other words, there is always some function that can easily be adjusted and used in an entirely different context. But regulators are limited in their jurisdictional reach. So I think that one absolutely necessary step that needs to be taken is for the financial regulators to start coming out of their jurisdictional silos and start coordinating and cooperating with one another Mm. on a qualitatively new level not just about sharing information and basically just like checking in you know so that the other regulator in another silo doesn't get upset if we do xyz here but actually start proactively talking about the trends that they're seeing in their respective sectors of the financial system and try to figure out how to basically start thinking about new products and services in this integrated way. And the interesting thing about it is that they actually have to bring in the regulatory authorities and legal authorities that have traditionally been sort of sitting almost outside the financial system. Okay, what what do you mean here? Like, for example, antitrust regulators Mm -hmm. in the United States um, you know, some antitrust authority, of course, resides, for example, with the banking agencies, but it's the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission that are 
general antitrust authorities, and they enforce antitrust uh, rules across the economy. But what's happening now is that now basically everything in finance is becoming a matter of antitrust, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if you have big tech companies uh, effectively issuing their own private crypto currencies. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, then are they financial institutions? And if so, should then bank regulators worry about market power that comes from their control of social media? Mm -hmm. And uh, banking regulators are not, of course, comfortable with that. Then they would need to really have this much more seamless, uh, constant cooperation and coordination with uh, the uh, Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice and other agencies on the state and the federal level and internationally, of course, uh, who are much more adept at looking at social media companies, for example. Yeah. And this is um, this may sound like a um, you know a natural thing to do, but in reality, of course, as we know, it's not so easy. So, so have you observed these kind of attempts, or at least some policy considerations, going into this dire direction? Uh, I mean, in the United States, predominantly. I think in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, definitely under the Biden administration, there is, uh, there is a growing recognition of the need for such a cooperation. And my hope is that it actually is happening. So we have uh, uh, a lot of really bright folks at FTC and the Department of Justice and um, new leaders at uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission and the banking agencies that are, and of course we have this new Consumer Financial Protection Act. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not that new, but yeah. still new to us. Um, and there is definitely a much greater attempt to sit at the table and look at new financial services, new products, new markets that are evolving and try to figure out which tools, which agency has specific mechanisms that can actually work best to address certain risks that they can identify. But so much work still needs to be done. It's yet not clear how, how well this will work. Yes. And do you see in the U.S. any type of uh, collaboration also with the private sector in a sense of, you know, here in, here in Denmark, in Copenhagen, we try to, to, to create a space where regulators, academics, but also the private markets can come in and talk together. Because I, I, I often observe that where the regulators lack certain comp competencies are obviously within technology and within the innovation itself. Mm -hmm and they might not necessarily understand all of the risks and vulnerabilities that that specific tool or fintech or app or whatever it is actually represents. So how do we bridge this knowledge gap that the, let's say the regulators still, still need to address? That is also a very astute question and a very important one at that because Personally, I firmly believe in the absolute need for um, cooperation and uh, exchange of ideas and working together between the private sector and um, the regulatory agencies because um, you know it's the private sector that drives the market. Mm -hmm. And who knows better uh, all the sort of um, potential benefits and pitfalls of, for example, a new tech-driven product, right? Uh, so that's that's definitely the ideal. The problem with that is that you know this coordination and cooperation between the public and private authorities uh, they have both the bright side to which I just alluded but also have, 
have a dark side. Okay. And um, it all depends on the context. In other words, there is a particular culture, it's a political culture, but perhaps even a broader culture of uh, the relationship between public and private sectors. And in different countries and different societies, that, that culture may kind of exhibit different characteristics. Mm-hmm. So in the U.S., at least in um, recent decades, there's been a dysfunctional sort of trend in that relationship where the private sector has sort of been um, more pushing the public sector towards certain outcomes that benefit the private service providers, financial institutions, big Wall Street institutions, for example, in allowing them to pursue highly lucrative, profitable, innovative solutions, Mm -hmm. often uh, without really being cautious about potential systemic effects, particularly effects on the stability of the financial sector as a whole. And uh, that dynamic is uh, one of the reasons why, for example, we had that big blow up in 2008. Uh, And that is sort of the danger that in the United States, a lot of people are keenly aware of in terms of not allowing the private sector to kind of, um, you know, force uh, regulators and lawmakers into hastily opening up too many gates to financial innovation without worrying about how to protect the population against all kinds of issues that come with it. So now uh, what's kind of complicating all of this um, effectively political political interactions is the fact that there is a new set of private actors that are becoming increasingly powerful in that space. And that's what we, at least in the United States, we kind of call as an umbrella term the crypto industry, right? So Mm -hmm. the crypto industry is now becoming very quickly becoming a powerful political group. Um, And it's kind of interesting to watch uh, what type of a dynamic um, is emerging between the lawmakers and policymakers on the one hand, the uh, new this new crypto industry on the other hand, and the traditional sort of Wall Street financial institutions, uh, on, I guess on the third hand, if one had three hands, <laughs> that would have been it, right? Because um, both the financial institutions, the traditional financial institutions, a very powerful, politically powerful group, um, and the crypto industry are private sector. And in many ways, their interest in promoting innovation coincide. But in many ways, they're also still in conflict because of the sort of power struggle, right? Struggle for the markets. And the challenge for policymakers is to really understand when the new kids on the block, so to speak, right, actually offer solutions to some old problems Problems. that Mm -hmm. policymakers have not been able to overcome precisely because of political pressure from Wall Street and other financial institutions. But also, on the other hand, to see at what point the new private interests and the old private interests may actually be working in tandem, and when that pressure may need to be resisted. So it's a very interesting and very subtle game right now. Okay, I think that with with that thought on the you know, the, the possibility of creating the tandem vis-a-vis um, kind of distor- distorting the, the or misusing the possible vulnerabilities of the, on one hand side, the investors, but also the markets. I think, um, I think that actually captures the idea of 
the, posi the positive side of the of the technology, but also the the vulnerability that it uh, ultimately can represent for 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 many. Sala, thank you very much for joining us in uh, in uh, in our podcast, and everyone who is listening to us, thank you for listening. This is the Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast, and we are very thankful for to the Highest Foundation for for sponsoring it. Um, this is Alexandra Anhof, and have a lovely day. Thank you. This is Copenhagen Legal Tech Lab podcast at the Faculty of Law, University of Copenhagen, brought to you by the Highest Foundation. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media and your favorite podcast platform.